Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I am James Uzika. And uh, every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies. We watch a new movie and then we watch an old movie. It's a little bit similar. And we try and compare and contrast. Um, and this week, it's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, we have been uh, overwhelmed mm. by the new Christopher Nolan movie Oppenheimer. Mm. Um, and we're comparing it to... Uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick, to whom Christopher Nolan is sometimes compared, or at least to whom Christopher Nolan would like to be compared, I think. Aha. Uh-huh. I did not know that. Yeah, I think I think, I think think um, Kubrick's chair is the one that he would like to sit in. Oh. Um, well, there was a, a, um, a 70mm print of 2001 that was circulating in this country about sort of five years ago or so, which was supervised by Christopher Nolan. Oh. I think he was... Um, I think he was trying to kind of you know, wear those, wear that mantle. Um, so, end of the world, yeah. big themes. Let's do some socials before we before we uh, witness the end of civilization. I, I gotta say, yeah, the 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 big themes, the end of the world, sort of gave me this social anxiety somehow, and I had this dream <laughs> last night that. You didn't want me to do socials. You wanted to go right into the podcast, and I got all nervous. And then for some reason, I was in my basement doing laundry, doing the podcast. And then my brother came down and just kept talking to me and would not understand that I was recording with you at the same time. Then I went upstairs, and he followed me upstairs. It was just, it was impossible. And then I finally did the socials. So this is just like my dream. It's like, just like a dream. Where's the brother? Or nightmare. Socials are always a nightmare. But <laughs> there is something called Twitter and we are at Two Real Cine Club at Twitter.com. Is, is there something called Twitter, isn't it? It's, oh, God. Or should we be telling people we should, they should X us now? He is, yeah. He is renaming it, isn't he? I don't know. Oh. So, so maybe we're yeah. Two Real Cine Club at X.com okay. now? I haven't checked. Okay. I, don't, I don't know. Well, we'll look into that for you. Uh, Instagram. Two Real Cine, Cinema Club, excuse me, at Instagram.com. Read the blog, Two Real Cinema Club.com. And you can send emails to the Two Real Cinema Club at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, tell us your opinion of our, we hope, wonderful work. Ask us questions. <laughs> offer us sponsorships. We're getting lots of sponsorships these days, so we'd love to hear from you. If you want to make us some restaurant recommendations, we're all ears, of course. Oh, yes. We're in two very different places, but uh, I think a rec- restaurant recommendation anywhere in the world is, is fine, right? <laughs> um, and please leave us a review if you can find the time and the energy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And apparently you can also contact us through YouTube, maybe leave us a comment or something. Well, funny you should mention. So I I recorded this jingle months and months ago, and this time is the first time I've ever had the chance to use it. We have a mailbag. You've got mail. You've got mail. We've got mail. Yeah. We've got mail. Yeah. This is just like uh, it's like a Tom Hanks movie. <laughs> so it's, it's yes. not quite mail, but we have some form of communication. So this week, Curiosity Tax commented uh, on YouTube uh, on one of our old pods. It was on uh, the Blonde and Insignificance uh, plot, episode 29. Mm. I remember this is going back to last year, but Curiosity Tax wrote, um, I was waiting for someone to make the comparison, that's it, between Blonde and Insignificance. uh, They say Blonde, obviously inspired by Nick Rogue and Insignificance, but the Rogue film it's most inspired by is The Man Who Fell to Earth, direct idea lifts. Mm. Uh, And then they add, it's sad that Nick Rogue has been discarded into the art bin. He never makes the important lists either. 
as his films are essentially mainstream, not serious enough for art people, not light enough for the mainstream. Um, and so, uh, so Curiosity Stream, uh, Curiosity Tax has made some fascinating comments uh, on the YouTube channel, more than I can read out here. Thanks mm. for the feedback, uh, Curiosity Tax. I think we agree. Nick Rogue probably is a more influential figure than he gets the credit for. Mm -hmm. um, but this kind of it reminds me of you know when we did uh, a popcorn counter a few episodes about ago about how the 1970s was the last time that complex adult films were being made yeah. for a mainstream audience. Uh, so, so uh, love to hear your comments. Please keep them coming. Maybe we'll play that jingle again. You've got mail. That jingle, or is there another jingle? That that jingle, the one we've just heard. Nice. The, the one that I will add in when I edit the pod, at least. <laughs> um, we did two Nick Rogue films, right? Because we did the we did both the films mentioned in the in Curiosity Taxes uh, comments. Because we went back with the Bowie film. Yeah, so we did do Man Who Fell to Earth as well as Insignificance. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So we're giving Nick Rogue props, even if nobody else Absolutely. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you for writing Curiosity Tax. We should probably uh, we should probably talk about a movie, shall we? Yeah, we've got uh, four and a half hours of movies to talk about, so <laughs> no time like the present or the past. Both of these films are kind of based in the past. Um, I'll start talking about Oppenheimer, if that's okay with you. Yeah. I think that was the plan. Um, I was actually surprised to see that this film was only $100 million in estimated budget, but it's... I found Yes, same here, yeah, actually, yes. I think it's probably a bit more than that, but maybe not. If, if so, it's, <laughs> it's hard to say that that's a bargain uh, price, but it kind of is, I guess. Um, it's it's one-third of the price of the new Indiana Jones movie. Wow. And yet they have similar headgear. So <laughs> you, you, know, you figure it out. I can't. <laughs> Uh, it's directed, of course, by Christopher Nolan, who also also wrote the screenplay um, based largely on a couple of books by uh, Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. These are biographies about um, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's obviously the subject of the film. What's the word you use there? Um, eponymous? No, it's not eponymous. Yeah, yeah eponymous. eponymous. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah, it's an eponymous, eponymous movie. Yeah, eponymous um, story. Woo, who is not in this film? That's another one of those yeah. we'll talk about. Uh, Killian Murphy stars as Oppenheimer. There's Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt. You've got cameos. There are no small parts. They're just big actors. Cameos by Kenneth Branagh, <laughs> Rami Malek, and Gary Oldman. Once yeah. again, kind of unrecognizable. I didn't figure that out until the credits, I don't think. But I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that everybody and anybody is in this film. Shall we do a synopsis? Yeah, go on. I, I, this is going to be a challenge. I want to hear your synopsis of this. Well, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait. I broke it down into some parts so that there's a spoiler bell space. So right. just listen to me until I say spoiler bell thing. Um <laughs> This film starts with a quote. It's sort of a modern Prometheus story, and they remind us that he who steals fire from the gods to share with the humans will be a long, tortured, and suffering soul. Um, and then there's a little bit of emphasis on a piece in is Sanskrit, I guess, and uh, um, which also sort of uh, harkens to that same Prometheus theme of... Uh, now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. That comes a little later in the film, but I think those two together kind of give you a pretty good idea of what the film is like. Uh, Jay Robert Oppenheimer is a smart guy who can think <laughs> and live in sort of multiple times and eras. He's also 
he's an American, which I did not know. This is an interesting week because I I just assumed Oppenheimer was European, and I also thought yeah, same here. Be, and and Stanley Kubrick too is American. And I always thought, oh, because he he died in England, he did so much work in England. I thought he was a I thought he was Brit. Mm. So uh, this was an enlightening week for those reasons. Um, He's also a polyglot American who speaks Dutch, Sanskrit. Uh, I think he's learning German because he lives in Germany at one point. He knows a lot of languages. Again, smart dude that's made very clear to us. Uh, but he's also a, a curious gentleman. He goes to Germany to study there, but he, he really gets into art as well. Paintings, music, poetry, culture. And Christopher Nolan does some very blunt uh, exposition by showing us um, how he's enjoying these things when he's in Germany. But he's also learning about... Um, uh, quantum mechanics, which is his specialty. Um, his life intertwines with Robert Downey's character, which is Admiral Lewis Strauss of the Atomic Energy Commission, brings him to Princeton's Institute for the Advanced Study to be the director. This is in 1947, so we get a little taste of various eras of Hoppenheimer's life, um, at least three strongly emphasized um, periods in his life. Um, and, and we kind of hop backwards and forwards between them constantly, we, don't we? We do. So I got confused because it seems like Strauss and Oppenheimer are meeting for the first time in 1947, and I guess it is, but then later on they seem familiar, and because there's some changes in color and black and white, it all kind of mixes together. So I do mention right here that we get hit with these tons of sort of disordered pieces of exposition. Um in which we're shown and told much of Oppenheimer's life at the same time. So there's a lot of showing and telling I found in this film. Um, ultimately, <laughs> yeah, he gets a teaching yes. gig at UC Berkeley. That's the University of California in Berkeley, um, uh, teaching quantum mechanics and nuclear physics. He begins to flirt with leftist causes and the Communist Party. This becomes a very important uh, uh, piece of information in the entire film. Um, he never joins the Communist Party, which is also very important to be clear on that. Um, Matt Damon's general, Leslie Groves, comes calling to have Oppenheimer serve as the director of the Manhattan Project, which, of course, has been tasked with developing a nuclear bomb for use against the enemies in World War II. Spoiler bell. So that's... I hope that sets up the next uh, couple of parts of the film. I felt like that was probably the first... Ooh, probably the first third of the film, like almost an hour, maybe 45 minutes, something like that. Yeah, I, I looked at my watch when Matt Damon turns up. Okay, good. Um, and it was uh, 43 minutes okay. into the film, 43 minutes. Because and the reason I looked at my watch, actually, because that was the first moment when there was a joke, I think. Oh, really? Oh, there was a joke? Um, yeah. I missed there was, yeah, the, oh, that was. No. I think that might also have been the last moment when there was a joke. <laughs> Matt Damon is like, you know, the, the light relief in the film, isn't he? And he says yes. something like... Um, Oh, is that one about the uh, I think world? Oppenheimer tells him, oh, you know, what do you want from a humble physicist? Yeah. And Matt, Matt Damon tells him, well, if I ever meet one, I'll tell oh, you. Oh, yes, that was it. That was good. That was good. That was a good joke. <laughs> I was the uh, amusing gag, but we'd waited 43 minutes for yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a lighthearted film. Um, <laughs> the next few minutes move kind of quickly, and that's actually, I think, I think, the best part of the film. I loved it. Um, Oppenheimer has this town built in the Neverlands of Los Alamos, New Mexico. This is where he's had a sort of a getaway I think maybe since childhood. So he loves the desert, loves the the horseback riding in the mountains and the, that dry climate. Um, but he brings the best minds in the world there and accidentally a British dude who's a spy <laughs> for the Russians. I think his name is Fuchs. Ugh. We're always the baddies, aren't we? Yep. Absolutely, at least for the Americans. 
Oppenheimer constantly needs clearance for military secrets and uh, security purposes. He never seems to get it. That's a really important thing in this film as well. Um, and as dull as that little that little piece of exposition and narrative may be, it's essentially the fixation and story point um, and what Nolan thinks is most dramatic of this three-hour film. This is a lot mm. about security clearance, both in the early sections of the film and later. Um, and much to the expense of other things that I think would be more interesting, but I'll opine a bit more on Oppenheimer later. Um, oh, that's good. I like you. that. Thank you. Oppenheimer, and, oh, and they call him Oppie. Oppie. They start calling him Oppie. And I'll, I'll, I'll use that later, too. Um, some of his, uh, Oppenheimer and some of his naive uh, scientists' friends, not all of them, um, think that the bomb will actually deter war and will be a weapon of peace. And he hopes that, too, um, he wants to ins- it to inspire negotiations with people like the Germans or the Japanese or the Russians, which is an interesting take on things. Sort of goes along with that um, that sort of American myth. I think of it as a peace through strength. If you've got lots of bombs, then you're going to scare other people into being peaceful. Uh, uh, that always works. Anyway. Uh, well, weirdly, weirdly, it kind of has worked, strangely, hasn't it? Yeah, at great expense, I think. And <laughs> it kind of has worked when it until it hasn't worked, I guess. <laughs> um, their bomb works, which we know is going to happen because we know the, roughly the history of World War II and, and some of the things that happened in the Manhattan Project. Um, or we would know that unless we've lived in caves, which we probably should have been doing because uh, <laughs> they're going to be exploding a lot of bombs out there in New Mexico and Nevada and... South Pacific Islands. Um, the testing sequences, I've got to say, are very impressive. Um, but this is around the point, I think, where the, a lot of the film just got lost for me. Um, Oppenheimer immediately sees the destruction the, of his legacy. Um, he sort of immediately has some regrets um, that kind of get sidelined sh- shortly thereafter because no- Nolan decides to focus on this um, talky administrative procedural investigation yeah. for the final act of the film. I, I don't know if you looked at your watch here when all jokes stopped, but <laughs> the last hour of this film, um, Strauss, Don, Downey's character, has this vendetta to settle with Oppenheimer, who I guess embarrassed him. I wasn't really clear on why he was so embarrassed. Um, um, but I, I have to also admit that I think this is such like a, a toxic masculinity moment um, because Strauss just wants to one up Oppenheimer, and he wants to he wants to deny him the security clearance. So he needs a new level of security clearance after I guess it expires after ten years. So we have to remember how important security clearance is for these guys. Um, Strauss sets up this sort of sham inquiry to deny him clearance, and then yeah. one of the worst moments of the film, I think, was when Nolan sort of ar- artificially ratchets up the tension of this hearing, which is super boring. It's a bunch of guys standing around <laughs> looking at notebooks and talking and accusing Oppenheimer, and he's answering questions. Um, and it's sort of like this long-awaited climax, but he, he basically ignites an atomic bomb worth of like histrionic lighting and sound effects to make sure we are witnessing something earth-shattering. It's really a, Otherwise, it's a pretty dull moment, but all of a sudden with... Visual effects, he makes it very exciting, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't very excited. But, um, I mean, it's a, it's a strange dramatic choice, isn't it? Because well, we'll talk about some of the dramatic yeah. choices in the film. But um, Strauss, Stra- I, I think it's Strauss. Oh, that's right. He I starts, was, uh, yeah, he says the southern, because it's Virginia, I guess, area, or West Virginia area is Strauss, right? Strauss. Strauss. I, I, I was really struggled with how to pronounce it, yeah. So I, I, I'm going to guess Strauss. Thank you. Um, but uh, he kind of makes this big point about how, you know, he's going to sort of you know humiliate 
Oppenheimer and take away a security yeah. clearance, but he's not going to do it in public. It's going to be a very small, boring little meeting in yeah. a tiny room somewhere. And so it's a strange choice to make that kind of the central dramatic yeah. axis of the film. Yeah, yeah. When you know, one of the characters even even says within the film, oh, this is small and boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's spend a lot of time on it. <laughs> so why are we spending all our time on this? I don't really understand. Um, yeah, a couple of things there. I, yeah, I agree. And I think we're, I'm probably going to talk about that a little bit more right away. But um and the Strauss, the Strauss thing. Strauss, of course, was the the composer was uh, quite known as a, like I think like Wagner, right? Like a Nazi. Ah. So maybe also he wanted to pronounce his name a little differently because of <laughs> because of the Strauss connection, so or the Nazi connection. So that'd be interesting to look at. But yeah, they do make a point of that, and I think that was why I was confused because I knew that they'd sort of already met. If you look at the film, you can't look at this film chronologically because it doesn't work chronologically. Um, so I was very confused when they talk about how to pronounce the name because it feels like they've already met when Strauss mm. invites him to Princeton, um, which is and he's he already knows Albert Einstein and and it was just uh, a little confusing on the the chronological or um, or disordered sequencing of the film. Um, so Oppenheimer's clearance is denied. Um, about three hours into the film, <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the climax. Um, before Nolan really stumbles upon what I thought was a, a great ending, um, it I, I'm sure he's created it, but the, because of the style of the filmmaking, it feels like he just stumbles on this last scene between Einstein and Oppenheimer. It's it harkens back to something that happened very early in the film. It seemed like it was just left for dead, but Einstein sort of implies that no bomb that the the bomb. Uh, you know, they were talking about how the bomb could destroy the entire universe, this thing, earlier in the film. Um, but the the alternate take there is that it kind of actually already did destroy the universe because these weapons are out there and it sort of heightened tensions right, and yeah. politics. So it's, it's a good moment. I thought it was a good a good ending, honestly, for this film. But... Um, it's not like a great, and it's not like a great ending. It seemed appropriate, and I, but it it seemed to sort of come out of nowhere because I was so focused on the clearance uh, for the security that it just kind of appeared as an ending. But it's a good moment. It's a good moment. I mean, it's it's a, it's um, it's sort of been built up as like this this kind of big central mystery, hasn't it? Because yeah. as you say, yeah, very early on we see this conversation at a great distance yeah. between. Einstein and Oppenheimer yeah. and we don't know, find out what they say and it's sort of dangled in front of your faces oh what did they yeah. say why does Einstein look so grumpy I yeah. wonder what the mystery is yeah. and eventually when it's revealed you know Einstein sends something which is you know pithy yeah. and a little bit profound but I'm not sure it entirely justifies the three hour no, wait time exactly it would be fairly easy for you to guess what the two men might have been talking about yeah. You know, and why one of them might look a bit grumpy it's not an enormous reveal yeah. you know, it's a nice line but I don't know whether it really um, justifies all that weight. And I also think that what it does is it turns the attention back to Strauss, even though he's not even there, because he's he's absolutely obsessed with what they were talking about, right? Because he thinks, mm. oh my God, what did Oppenheimer just tell Einstein about me, me, me? Um, <laughs> so I think that's what it does. It turns the attention back there, and it, it ends up being this sort of nice moment, but it's, and I, as I said, I thought it was a pretty good ending, but it's not worth three hours, let's put it that way. I think um, you could have done that at an hour and a half or two hours. Little suggestion. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to op- opine a little bit more here because I, there are some things okay. that I didn't see. So this is sort of the end of my synopsis. That's the end of the film for everyone. <laughs> now I'm going to go on a little bit more of a rant because I think what would have been okay. interesting to me 
would be more of the regret and more action from Oppenheimer in the third act because I think mm. he did have opinions. He still had a voice, I suspect. I don't know the biography. I don't know his life very well, but that's really the interesting stuff to me because it's the very moment he witnesses his bomb go off in the New Mexico desert, he immediately starts to have these regrets. And Nolan spends a couple minutes um, on it when there's this sort of um, celebration of the bomb in, in this small town in um, New Mexico and Los Alamos. They're all sort of celebrating that they've just bombed the, the or I guess, that, well, yeah, that they've just bombed the the Japanese cities. Um, but it, he does not linger on that regret for very long. It's it's more like Oppenheimer just gets pilloried, he gets judged, he gets manipulated for, for at least 45 minutes, I would say. Um, and we see little or none of the effects, really, of the bomb on the Japanese. We don't see destruction in Japan. We don't see Oppenheimer having to look at pictures of what he'd done. There's no, no. there's no yep. suffering. It just goes right into this procedural thing about Oppenheimer and his clearance, which just seems pretty petty in in in, in relation to what ha- actually happened <laughs> historically, right? It's um, like a long meeting to determine that somebody is not going to get a library card, yeah, isn't it? It's it like... really is. So it becomes <laughs> oh, right. Is that the, is that the, is that the I, important part? Okay. I think. I mean, I yeah. I, I agree with you. There's, there is a great 15 minute sequence in this film, like, and it, which end again. I, this is the second time I looked at my watch. It ends just about two hours. Okay. Um, which is leading up to the test of the bomb. Yeah. You know, and this is you know I think this is the thing that the trailers have mostly concentrated on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know, propelled by this sort of throbbing music. It's got this great overwhelming score. You know, and it's really gripping cinema, these 15-minute sequence that leads up to the testing of the, the bomb. And it's fantastic. And that was the film I was expecting, yeah. that 15-minute sequence. Mm-hmm. But most of the rest of the 180-minute runtime you know, is not that. No. And it's not what I was expecting. It's all the library card stuff. Yeah. And I feel like this it seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Nolan is very skillful at these kind of big you know, big moments and, you know, big build-ups and ratcheting up the tension. He's very good at that. And it seems a shame then to devote only 15 minutes of the runtime to it. Yeah. Um, when I was quite happy to have had an awful lot more about the Manhattan Project, and yeah. a little bit less about, yep. you know, what did you know about the Communist Party? Yeah. Um, I'm, I think this accidentally might be about something that I thought was poignant, but um, I, I think <laughs> it becomes a story about, like, white men in power having ego battles and toxic relationships in, in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And maybe mm. that is a good story to see. Maybe that's what he intended. I don't know. But even if he didn't in that, it's not terribly cinematic, which is very ironic because a lot of this film is, it's all about cinema, right? Um, mm. But I think it could be interesting for a while. It's not interesting for the last act of a film. I don't think that's the right place for it. Um, the other thing that struck me is that you know, the protagonist is just, kind of useless in the third act Oppenheimer he's he's fallen he's fallible um uh he is regretful but I don't I wanted to see him like be an activist with that regret and really see how he's gonna um you know change his legacy a little bit but he's actually just sitting there um he seems like he has more story to tell, but he's just sitting in a chair, literally in a corner of a small room. <laughs> and I'm going to quote the great Patrick Swayze here. Nobody should put Oppie in a corner. Nobody. <laughs> Not even Christopher Nolan. Not like that. Um, I think this when we I know we talk about writing on the pod, don't we? And that's kind of like one of the big emphases of things that we're talking about and so i think let's talk about the writing of this film from what we can glean from having seen the film 
So, I mean, it's this very tricksy structure, isn't it? The film really reminds me of JFK. There's some bits that are in black and white, some yeah. bits in colour, some bits that are flitting forwards and backwards. There are kind of two different hearings, which feel like a little bit like courtroom scenes, um, which a lot of the action is sort of centred around and we get flashbacks, flash forwards. It's got a very complicated structure and i wonder whether could you take all those bits and just edit them into a linear structure and then still maintain the film's impact i'm not sure that you can but in which case if this kind of mobius strip sort of shape is necessary to make the film enjoyable maybe you know, there's a, a a problem with the story i try to summarize you know what 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 you know what what actually if i was going to you know do an elevator pitch what what actually is the story and i wrote down that oppenheimer is a brilliant but awkward scientist he has some moral sympathies with communism he's a bit of a womanizer and he manages to herd enough cats together to build an atomic bomb and then he feels regretful and he hasn't managed every part of his life brilliantly but then he gets hounded out of office by people who don't want someone in a position of influence who regrets murdering two hundred thousand people <laughs> And that's kind of, you know that that is the story of yeah. the film, isn't it? Yep. But it's it's told by taking you know those fifty five words and sort of rearranging them in a random order, yeah, <laughs> and then kind of expecting you to sort of fill in the bits, um, uh, you know, and, and and sort of solving the puzzle is part of the entertainment of the of the film. As far as the, the you know the characters go, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say it's a film about. Toxic masculinity. I I can exactly see that. That's a, a clever appraisal. Actually, it is about you know awful egotistical men clashing in a room, um, and it's certainly true. The film is not very interested in women, is it? No. There's like basically there are th there are three women in it, and I had to try. Uh, one of them is like that's uh, like a, a woman mathematician who's given virtually no screen time at all, yeah. and is there to prove, look, look, woman, look. Um, then there's. Um, so there's kind of only really two women in it. There's Kitty, who's Oppenheimer's wife, and her character is cross drunk. Um, and that's it. And in every scene, she is drunk and cross. Yeah. And, and that's kind of all the depth she is given. And then there's his lover, Jean. Yep. Um, and her character, so she's played by Florence Pugh, and I think her character is breasts. That's that's okay. basically, that's, that's, a, that's sort of about it. I did a little yeah. bit of reading. So the real Jean Tatlock, she was a physician. She was a psychiatrist. She was, you know, a professional uh, you know, interesting character. Sadly, she did take her own life. Yeah. Um, but, and and here, her kind of the sum total of her character is largely relegated to oh, she's the nude one. Um, and you know, that's kind of it. It's a bit of a shame, I think. I would feel you know, a little bit embarrassed for Christopher Nolan yep. um, writing these kind of female characters. Well, she's also depressed. She's not just nude. She's also depressed. <laughs> um, I I think that de-emphasis of women also sort of heightens the the very masculine world. Um, uh, and they're, they're, the women are either hard done by or neurotic uh, or both. Um, it's, I mean, it is kind of men walking down corridors, the movie, it's a, isn't it? <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's men in rooms talking about things and now here are more men yeah. talking about things. That's, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's men doing things yeah. with I, a capital T. I think it does seem appropriate that uh, it's all about men because it's all about weapons and war and that seems to be the realm of kind of smartly stupid men i guess it's like uh so i think that does that does make sense but it is a shame that there's not a bit more depth to some of these characters that probably had a lot more depth uh, yeah it's not very sympathetic to the, the the female characters at all um i'll talk i'm just going to mention my tutor and yours i think at one time the great uh, philip palmer oh yes at london film school who said politics is really tough to do in in 
cinema. So you sure just try to avoid it if you can. And I'm not, <laughs> Those are wise words. Yeah. yeah I, I'm not sure that, because I had, I had, there's a lot of Marxism in one of my first drafts. And he's like, yeah, you might not want to do this so much. Um, um, and I'm not sure that Christopher Nolan is really the guy to do it either. I mean, he's very visual. And I think you ha- he, get, he gets stuck in a lot of details that are hard to make visual. And I think that, I think he set himself up for a challenge, not necessarily for failure, but for a challenge. But I think um, what you were talking about at first um, about the linear or nonlinear nature of it, I think most people are linear thinkers, and I don't think Christopher Nolan is. And um, so I think, I mean, he understands this film perfectly. I don't necessarily <laughs> understand this film. And I don't think time jumping makes it more interesting. Um, he's known for Memento, which is a brilliant film, and, you know, obviously that's just a backwards um, chronology, chronological yeah. film, has, which is brilliant. But there's still a simplicity in it because it's still linear. It's just backwards linear, I guess. Um, right, yeah. If anything, I would sort of like the third act of this film, the first act somehow, and then that becomes this sort of bizarre exposition where you, you find out what he's paid for, but then you go back and realize what he had done, and you could end with the the final creation and the testing of the bomb. And you could end with some regret on what happened in Japan, but I don't think that's necessarily a good film either, but I think that's the one thing that struck me was that I think just the acts are wrong somehow. It's um, Right, yeah. I don't know how you remedied it. I mean, I think it, it, it's a beautiful-looking film. I, mean, I, I, I have no doubt that Christopher Nolan where, knows where to put the camera. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it looks... Fantastic, you know, and, it, and um, I know he makes a big thing about shooting, you know, on celluloid, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, makes a big thing about not using digital effects unless it's absolutely, you know, can't be done another way. And there's a lot of you know, practical effects in the films, and um, you know, some of the the physicsy style um, discussion is sort of interspersed with these little cutaways of trying to illustrate, you know, the notion of fast moving particles and spinning objects and things like that with, you know, little sort of visual fillips and and all that is very enjoyable. But uh, knowing where to put the camera is not the same as telling a story cinematically. I think it's, it's a lot of it is kind of louder is better, brighter is better, bigger is better, but it's not, but cinema, as as we've said, you know, 72 times now, 72 episodes, it's about telling a story with pictures. And here we have great pictures, but the great pictures don't necessarily really tell a story. They are pictures of people talking, trying to tell a story. I think like it's like these great pictures illustrate a story, but don't tell it. Yeah. Um, yep. And that's you know, sort of a cinematic failing. Yep. You know, and it's kind of it's ludicrous for me to point the finger at Christopher Nolan and say, oh, no, you need to write better because obviously he has a career and I don't. But, yeah. Um, but it's uh, I, I, I feel like there's a, you know, there is a great and more interesting, more nuanced and shorter film that could play to Christopher Nolan's strengths yeah. in this material. Yep. But somehow we've kind of missed that target and veered off and ended up exactly like you say, doing the one thing that Philip Palmer warns you never to do, which is just have faces talking about politics yeah. for the runtime. Yeah. Um, I think, you, yeah, you hit the nail right there in the head. Um, the story is not that clear, simple, more direct storytelling. I think it's just always more effective. Um, and it just becomes sort of intentionally opaque, which is, I think, a, his biggest mistake. I couldn't, I couldn't make a sense of a lot. And the the one scene that I'm going to point at is that one scene where <clears throat> it's climactic. I guess they're accusing, they're denying him of his clearance in that um, sham sort of uh, investigation into his communist ties. Um, 
and then there are all these lights and you can hear the bomb blowing off and I don't know. It's just it's it's like he's that's his atomic bomb. It almost equates his experience falling to this commission as somehow likened to the, the atomic bomb dropping. But um, I, th I think like with a good setup and patient story building, you can get tension. But you, if you're just using effects to get that tension, then I think you're hitting the mark. You're missing the mark, I should say. Um, yeah. And it's it's like this. Like I described it a slate of heavy-handed direction does not get tension necessarily, but good writing and good setups, I think, do. Um, and then I think I also got very confused. Where I, I couldn't make out why he was going black and white and going color. And um, mm. it's, it's it, I think he's trying to color code for us somehow, but it didn't really help me decipher what was going on. So I think, like again and again, I found like his motifs were distracting the viewer. Or and at least taking us away from the story or the or the paucity of story. There's really not a whole lot of story, I don't think. Even though we're looking at this guy's life, and he's, in Nolan's opinion, one of the most significant personalities in history. You know, for what he's done. So he's, he's the viewer sort of investing energy in trying to dissect some of these visuals for meaning, and then I'm I'm not engaged in the film. And there's one again. There's one scene I'll point to is there's this sort of dinner scene. I think the Russians have just exploded some sort of bomb. Um, and then Robert Downey Jr.'s character comes back to this table full of scientists, and I don't know if they're he um, Strauss's character, Robert Downey Jr. was coming from some black tie event or something like that, and then all these scientists are sitting around a table, and I couldn't even tell when this was happening, but it turns out it was 1947. The Russians have done a bomb, and sort of chastising Oppenheimer for not uh, exploring the hydrogen bomb option, which he sort of um, he sort of. Uh, suggests that it's not worth investigating much to the dissolution of uh, Edward Teller, this other scientist who wants to work on a hydrogen bomb. Um, and that scene was in color at one point. It was in black and white at one point. It, it appears <laughs> yes. four or five times. It's a table full of talent. I do want to talk about like the long list of actors named well-known actors in this film. Um, but that scene as a result was confusing to me. And I think it was because I mean, I'm already confused by the first 30 or 40 minutes. And then this happens and I couldn't make sense of why things were in black and white and why things were in color. And maybe you have a better idea, but it escaped me. And then I'm, then I'm focusing on that and I'm not focusing on the story of the protagonist or the story yeah. of the film. Um, all I can tell you is what I've read after the fact. Yeah, which is bad. Which is in an interview, <laughs> I think he suggested that the, or someone suggested, I read this somewhere, that, that the colour sections are supposed to be from Oppenheimer's point of view and the black and white sections are supposed to be more objective and from somebody else's point of view. Wow. Um, and I, but I'm not entirely sure that I, I certainly didn't get that while watching the film yeah. and I'm not sure even after the fact that that makes an awful lot of sense. Mm. I don't, I, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I feel like, you know, is it that the scenes that are in black and white are the ones that do not feature Oppenheimer at all? But I think sometimes he appears in black and white. He's in, yeah, no, he's definitely in black and white. Yeah. So I, I'm not entirely sure that it's a successful idea and maybe, you know, it's a, uh, you know, a fun, interesting idea, but I'm not sure that it entirely works. Yeah. So I will just talk about actors for a moment. At one point, I just started, yeah. I, I'm writing notes in the dark in the theater. And at one point, I just started <laughs> listing names because uh, I was so distracted from the story. So Josh Hartnett, Florence Pugh, David Crumold, Scott Grimes, Matthew Modine, Casey Affleck, Kenneth Branagh, Gary Ullman, and then I wrote WTF Gary Ullman. Um, <laughs> Remy Malik, you know, the Academy Award winner and what best actor he's going to. There are no small parts, I guess. Uh, he has a minor role, I guess. Benny Safdie, yeah. James Remar, 
Um, and I almost think that when you put that many well-known actors, you're thinking they're going to be doing a lot on screen, but they're really just cameos. And I almost think that that also distracts from the story because, you know, every actor brings, you might deny this, but they bring something to a role. Yeah. So if you see Casey Affleck dressed up in a uniform and he's got stripes all over himself and you think, okay, this is going to be a big role. So I'm, I'm starting to focus on that character a little bit. And he disappears. He comes back in yeah. black and white later. He's in color earlier. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's actually a mistake. I mean, it's great. It's just like in the Wes Anderson film. You can attract all these people to take uh, a role of any size in your film. But I don't know that it helps you. I think it actually hurts sometimes. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's distracting, isn't it? Not giving anybody enough space to kind of to stretch their muscles. But that's what that's, it feels like the shape of the whole movie. All of the scenes are generally very short. Yeah, yep. Um, this is this kind of thing that Christopher Nolan does. It's lots and lots of short scenes. Yeah. Which means which much must mean a huge number of setups, and it must be yeah. an exhausting shoot, I Absolutely. guess. But also because the scenes are so short, yep. um, they kind of have to be expositional. There's just enough time for you to say, "I'm in the project," and then you cut to a new scene. Yeah. Um, and so you end up with like a lot of talking that could have been sort of visual storytelling. Yeah. But instead, it's it's you know it's very short scenes, and to cover the ground, you just need to have people telling each other what the story is. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is uh, kind of the opposite of, of cinematic writing. Yeah. Um, uh, Rachel and I watched it together and she made an interesting comment uh, after it was over. She was saying the whole film was cut together like it was a trailer. Yeah. It was like a three-hour trailer. It's just it's just exhausting. Yeah. Constantly, very rapidly cutting from one thing to another. Exactly. And often the music would carry on from one scene straight into the next scene. Yeah. So it feels like this kind of music underpinning scene after scene after scene. Yep. It just ends up feeling, yeah, like a summary of a film. Yeah. But it's, you know, a three-hour summary of a of a 90-minute movie. It just becomes exhausting. And honestly, I think the trailer does a great job because it's probably about two or three minutes. Um, and <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., is, I think he's in there, but none of that procedurals, procedural is in the trailer. The trailer is really yeah. all about Oppenheimer building the town, I think, is, again, one of my, my favorite sequences of the whole film, um, and testing the bomb. That's the trailer. That's the good stuff of the film, and it's... Maybe three minutes, two minutes, not three hours. I think, yeah, I, I think, yeah, we want a great movie about the Manhattan Project, and this kind of somehow wasn't it. Yeah. Um, well, and it seems, yeah, and, I, and there's not really going to be space for anybody else to make a movie about the Manhattan Project for 20 years now. That's right. So, yeah, we've yeah, kind of missed it. It's funny what you just said about scenes, though, because that's going to contrast really um, sharply to the next film we talk about, the Kubrick film, is very different yeah. in terms of space and scenes. So that'll be interesting to to see and uh, I saw the I saw the Doctor Strange Love first and then came to this one just a few nights ago and uh, that that just struck me immediately so we'll, we'll get more into that I suppose when we get to the second half of the film to part, the part two um, in the meantime yeah. I I was going to say I, I hesitate to call the cliche score but you know what no no I don't, I'm not going to hesitate to good, call the cliche score good for you um, yeah there are arrests that need to be made and I'm, <laughs> I'm picking up the phone right now cliche score I want to hear it. You have to go first because I have a couple that are... I didn't spend much time on cliches, but there are some in there. Right, right, okay. The, the one that really leapt out at me in what is, I think, a quite awkwardly written screen uh, scene is uh, the use of gravity as a metaphor for physical attraction. Because I feel like I've seen this scene many times. Two people are talking about gravity and they're saying, oh, that, oh two objects attract each other and then their hands brush against <laughs> each other. And I think, oh... 
oh yes, scientists who are going to be having sex in the next scene. It's that scene. Yes, that's yes, good. yes. That's right. Gravity isn't a metaphor for attraction. Well done. Never seen that before, which is it's a shame, isn't it? I think it's just I've, I've seen that does, um, quite a lot. Does that help in with both Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh? I've, the Emily Blunt, oh, quite quite possibly. It's Emily Blunt was the yeah. scene that I wrote it down in, yeah. but I I wouldn't be at all surprised yeah, if it also plays out on that floor. <laughs> that was poetry, poetry well. and gravity. I think maybe that's the. <laughs> and then the other thing I wrote down for the cliche score to investigate is um, it's it's a film about science and engineering where you see very little actual science mm. or engineering going on. Yeah. Instead, it's people, it's men talking in a common room. It's like you know, real science is it's kind of graft, isn't it? It's kind of, this is kind of working milieu. Yeah. You have to, you know, you sit down and you do the calculations. You yep. set up your experiments yeah. and you run them again and again and again. That I was trying to think of an analogy. I, I thought, like, imagine there were dozens and dozens of films about the film business. Yeah. Imagine seeing a film about making a film. Ugh, boring. But you never, ever see a Fresnel light or a camera or a grip or a set yep. or a script supervisor or a dolly yep. or a big set of studio doors opening up mm-hmm. or a guy with a boom mic or a makeup table. You never see any of that. Yeah. You know, that's impossible. Those all feature in films about making of films. But that's kind of what we've got here. It's science where, you know, a film about science where the actual science you know, it's all kind of happens off screen. Yeah. And people meet up and say, oh, yes, Jeff, you go and do the calculations. And then we never see anything more. Yeah. Um, this I like oh, really kind of maybe cringe. There's a scene where they're talking about how to detonate the bomb. And someone says, I'm interested in implosion. Yeah, we're right. putting explosives around the bomb and then and then uh, dead sent, sent, sent the explosions off to implode the bomb. Yeah. And somebody else says, yes, I'd like to investigate that idea. I mean, it just makes me kind of cringe. <laughs> this is not what scientists talk like. Yeah. It's, it's all lots of politics and very yeah. little science. Well, yeah. And, and I think science, like politics, pretty hard to do, especially when you yeah. don't even try to do it. I think that's what it is. I mean, if you're going to do it, you've got to really make an effort and make it seem realistic. But... That doesn't happen here. Did you have anything for the squad? I've got a couple. I, th- I think my first two I'm just going to roll right by because they're not that – they're cliches. But I think the 50s communist paranoia has become something of a cliche oh. and then the deep state conspiracies. Like there's a – it's quite convoluted what Strauss does in this film and even the character who he's explaining it to seems really confused and I <laughs> – I relate to that character. Um, I was very confused. So I think that sort of stuff um, – it's kind of become cliche and it's almost it almost is an excuse not to to show things i guess you know and when someone has to explain what they've just done to set up oppenheimer i think that um it's it seems a little lazy or it's just too confused to actually make it work uh in the film but the one that i love i think is um horses tied to trees Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy at one point, they just tie their horses to like a single pine needle and those horses are not going to move. And I've seen this all the way back into the, you know, the old John Ford films and John Wayne. How many trees or twigs did John Wayne tie a horse to? And I think obviously these are Hollywood trained horses. They're probably, they don't even need the pine needle, but I just think that I want a tree, wrap it around a trunk or a sturdy branch or maybe a rock or something like that. But you go around a leaf of a tree, that, that shouldn't hold a horse. And I don't know. I don't know much about horses. I've been on a horse maybe three times in my life. So, But that's my cliche. I've seen that again and again. You know, I'm going to watch out for that in every horse movie from now on now. It's going to, that's going to leap out of here. And I, I'm also not a knot person. I don't have many knots in my arsenal, but um, they don't even use knots. It's really just like a wraparound. <laughs> 
Anyway. It's just chuck the reins, yeah, yeah. At, a, at a twig. There we go. We'll come just back to it. We're definitely going to come back to it when we talk about strange love. So uh... we will. We, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I, that's, that's three hours of, of men talking earnestly in, in the desert. I feel like we should have a break. We should. Uh, should we have a break? And then we will return to the all black and white rather than half black and white. Uh, Dr. Strangelove and see if we can uh, end the world again <laughs> slightly differently. <laughs> Stop worrying about it. Isn't that the <laughs> Two real cinema club listeners are listening, except when they're not listening. The TRCC family, that's what we call ourselves, the TRCC family, is a discerning audience. And that means they appreciate good sound, but they also appreciate the absence of sound. Especially when it comes to their favorite podcast. When they want to listen to it or don't want to listen to it. I know it sounds crazy. Crazy good. Just like the Bose QC45 noise-canceling headphones that are becoming the Bluetooth listening device of choice for the TRCC crowd. As you know, James R., that's you, the Bose QC45s offer great sound when you want to listen to music or podcasts, when you want to eliminate unwanted sounds, when you just need their noise cancellation properties, or when you want the wonderful hybrid function of eliminating, eliminating what you don't want to hear while giving you exactly the volume of what you do want to hear. I've had my headphones for a couple of months now, and I can't believe I've been using the pieces of crap that I've found or inherited (laughs) for the past few decades. Look, if I'm on a trip or in an errand when I don't care about good sound quality or couldn't care less about my headphones getting stolen, I still use my crappy wired headphones (laughs) duct taped together and disintegrating on my ears. But if I really want to hear things or not hear things, I put on my Bluetooth Bose QC45s. Join the likes of Mike P, professional location sound recorder, using them on the job on sets out there in California and all Ah. over the filmmaking world. Steve and Stephanie R.L. relishing their upright (laughs) guitar greatness at high volume. Or Jeff A. in Massachusetts enjoying the podcasts while trimming the hedges. Or Dino Dino, Saldino, Pibolino, Primo Dino, Puppuccino Dino Rente, just chilling out at nap time. Yours truly, listening to Nick D on the noisy bus. Or Jay Razor, punishing himself by re-listening to his own podcast while cutting the grass. <laughs> the way our other fake sponsor knows, knows great sense, Bose knows great sound. And although a little pricey, they make good sense. Go to boys, Bose.com, T, slow, what is it? Forge last plastic? <laughs> Go to Bose.com backslash TRCC. That's Bose.com backslash TRCC and find that it really actually takes you nowhere. <laughs> or place an order at Bose.com and mention Two Real Cinema Club and receive absolutely no discount, no benefit, <laughs> or special treatment whatsoever. In fact, they might tell you to go to Bluetooth yourself, but it could be funny anyway. Um, <laughs> Bose QC45s. Here, here. Oh, that's good. I didn't realize they're looking for dogs. Now I want another thing. It's canceling it. It's a good idea. 
back. A glorious noise-cancelling stereo to talk about the uh, the second movie in our pairing, Doctor Strangelove or colon How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 1964, directed and written by Stanley Kubrick. Well, so, so directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Kubrick. Kubrick always would get a... A, a writer's credit on all of his films, yeah. but I don't know whether you've read um, is it Eyes Wide Open, uh, which is um, uh, the book uh, about the writing of uh, Eyes Wide Shut uh-huh. by uh, Frederick Raphael, I think, uh, which, which which is a fascinating short little book about Kubrick's writing process. And basically, Kubrick's writing process was that he and Frederick Raphael would spend hours and hours talking, and then Frederick Raphael would say. Let me just go off and read the script. And then Kubrick would hound him constantly for pages and would insist that he faxed five pages over every day, no matter what. Um, So so Kubrick kind of writing slightly more by remote control, I think. But, you know, obviously clearly very active in the the writing process. I did a little bit of research, um, you know, about uh, about the writing process for Dr. Strangelove, uh, based largely on John Baxter's biography, Stanley Kubrick, which is a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody. Um, So. It's originally um, the the film is based on a book called Two Hours to Doom yeah. by Peter George, Peter George um, which is a you know fairly realistic uh, study or kind of fiction, but a kind of like a thriller about um, this notion of an accidental third world war. Uh, and the London head of the Institute of Strategic Studies uh, gave a copy of this book to Kubrick because he thought it might be interested in it. Um, and Kubrick liked it enough that he asked the, the author, Peter George, to work with him to adapt it into a script. Uh, so the two of them were kind of working on it, presumably Kubrick badgering George day after day, send me mm. more pages. Uh, but every time they would work on it, the project kept veering into comedy, basically. It was difficult for them to avoid the sheer absurdity coming to the fore in the script. Um, and then in the meantime... Um, uh, Terry Southern had written a comedy book called The Magic Christian, which was yeah. given to Kubrick by Peter Sellers. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Southern kind of pitched this notion of doing a a, uh, a profile of Kubrick for Esquire. So Southern was like a journalist uh, writing freelance for Esquire. So the two met up and, and the kind of the, the profile never really kind of came to fruition. But instead, it turned into an invitation to Southern yeah. to work on the script that Kubrick had been writing with uh, with Peter George. Apparently, it was Terry Southern who came up with the title, uh, because at the time, um, Esquire would do these kind of really lengthy article titles of exactly this kind of caliber. It would be, you know, a short, pithy suggestion and then like a colon and something much, much longer. Um, so this is how the, the very convoluted Dr. Strangelove title came about. Uh, apparently, the two of them would work on the script during Kubrick's long, very, very slow car journeys from Kensington to Shepparton Studios every day. Yes. <laughs> Uh, all this at the time was happening at the same time that Kubrick's long-term relationship with James Harris, his producer, was dissolving. So Columbia came on board to back the film, uh, but uh, they would only pay for it on the condition that Peter Sellers play four roles. Um, Peter Sellers was paid a million dollars for Dr. Strangelove. I did a, a little calculation. You can calculate what that is worth now. That is uh, just over $10 million in today's Ooh. money. So, uh, yeah, incredible payday. It was half uh, the budget of the film. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they spent it all on Sellers. Um, but then I, I, mm, Peter Sellers is you know, probably a slightly problematic figure, but you know what? I think they've gotten their money's worth um, because, yeah, he is so central to the yeah. success of the film. Now, uh, 
we always try and figure out, well, uh, why did we choose this film? And this time, this lands on your door. So tell me. Oh, does it? Why Ooh. did you choose this film? Do you have any other questions for me, Counselor? I think in part I knew what I was in for with Oppenheimer and I wanted something really, really different. <laughs> I figured Oppenheimer was going to be long and kind of intense and disordered. And I knew that... Um, that uh, Dr. Strangelove was short, less intense, and ordered. So I guess that was one thing. <laughs> I also, this is another, I uh, told you before that I thought Kubrick was um, British because he'd done so many films over there, and I think of him as an ah. English director. So I thought, oh, okay, we're going to have two highly celebrated English directors. Um, <laughs> but also, obviously, you know, they're both about the bomb in different ways as well, and I thought just the nice, what is it, 60-year spread between the two films? Something mm. like that, yeah. So I thought it would be um, good. It's just something, a lighthearted thing to balance out the intense and dour Oppenheimer film. So I think they work pretty well together. They um, do. It's a brilliant yeah. pairing. Absolutely. Um, although I always feel sorry for any film that's compared to Kubrick. Um, yeah. But, eh, okay. Shall, shall I tell you the story? Please. So... It's the 1960s, uh, and Dr. Strangelove opens uh, with a statement on, printed on the screen uh, that the Air Force assures the audience that these events uh, shown in this motion picture could never happen in real life. That's the first thing you see. Mm -hmm. And then there's a beautiful opening sequence, all in black and white, of a plane refueling in, uh, in midair. It really looks like uh, two dragonflies mating somehow, one yeah. kind of extending its organ into the other. I mean, it's... It's kind of you know, poetical and beautiful and remarkable, actually. And then uh, we get this ominous voiceover uh, talking about a mysterious Soviet weapons project uh, in the frozen northern hemisphere. And then only after these kind of three uh, little sequences does the film actually start. We get Brigadier Jack D. Ripper. All the names in this film are kind of comedy names. So he's Jack D. Ripper. He's, he's a, um, a U.S. Air Force brigadier. He's closing his Air Force base and issuing the command to his constantly airborne bombers to fly to their targets in Russia and destroy them. Because it turns out his intention is to start World War III. He's going to force the US to go all in and destroy the USSR. Uh, but his second in command, Lionel Mandrake, who's a kind of RAF exchange officer with this kind of fantastic clip British accent, uh, kind of short little uh, consonants, um, he realises something is wrong. Uh, and he asks Ripper to call the strike off, but Ripper refuses. Um, and he kind of rants at length about conspiracy theories about communists and fluoridated water. So it looks like it's going to happen. And the US government, uh, under President Merkin Muffley, um, also played by Sellers, they meet in the emergency war room, uh, desperate to try every possible strategy to try and recall the bombers and uh, avoid World War Three, And... and in the third arm of the story, we follow the flight of one of the B-52s, uh, captained by Major Kong, Slim Pickens, uh, heading towards its target. Uh, and the whole crux of the story is, well, can Mandrake and Muffley find the recall codes? Can they defuse the situation and bring back the bombers? Or will the ex-Nazi think tank head Dr. Strangelove, also played by Peter Sellers, have to deploy his last-ditch plan to save the human race. Uh, so have you, see, you, see, you must have seen this film before several times. How often have you seen this film, do you think? I think this was 
the third time. Yeah, I don't I, think I've seen it more than three times, but I think it was the third time. Yeah, Pretty sure it's the third time I've seen it as well. I haven't seen it for many years. I think I saw yeah. it as a boy, saw it as a young man, saw it again. And you know, and I think it changes every time, actually. I find it funnier than ever this time round. This is a funny film. It's, you know, it often gets listed as one of the greatest comedies of all time. Um, and I kind of explained this to my son, who was kind of watching it with us. I was saying, you know, this film might seem a bit old fashioned, but it's often quoted as one of the greatest comedies ever. So, you know, to bear with it. Uh, and even he, at 13 years old, was chuckling away. Oh, good. Um, there is a lot of broad humour. Yeah, very broad. Like the, the, the famous gag, you know, which, you, which people always quote, is, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and that got, <laughs> they got a big laugh. And like, I, it's like I was saying, like a lot of the characters, they have comedy names. It's a real kind of 60s yeah. comedy kind of uh, uh, idea, isn't it? So there's a character called Bat Guano. Yep. The Russian premier is Mr. Kissoff. Yeah, um, you know, like the Brigadier being called Jack D. Ripper. I mean, it's you know, these are some pretty clear kind of comedy gag names. But um, the, I, I like, the, but a lot of the comedy comes from like the tone. And it's all down to Peter Sellers, basically. His, um, you know, he gives these three very different comedic performances, and they're all kind of great, I think. And they're all nuanced. They're all clever. There's this um, this moment when he he is playing the kind of the bald, rather ineffectual president of the United States, yeah. and he, he he's told he's given this news that bombers are heading to russia and you know his reaction is so like that reaction of uh, george w bush oh yeah in that kind of famous bit of footage when he's told about uh, 9-11 and he has just has that kind of frozen face and a very imperceptible eye widening it's understated and brilliant I mean, it's just great three great comedy performances and um and the other thing that really makes me laugh i think this film has some of the best one-sided phone conversations ever yeah uh, you know, Peter Sellers on the phone to the Russian premier. He's obviously extremely drunk and you have to infer what the other guy is saying. It's just brilliant. Apparently, a lot of it improvised and then written up in the script retrospectively. So I think Peter Sellers was just kind of. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Improvising his way through it and being being fantastic. Yeah, I think that's why he's hired, because he really does carry the film, I think, to a certain extent. Mm. And then George C. Scott is obviously histrionically funny and at, at times as well. Um yeah, it's um, it's it depends on sellers. I think this film is really pretty dependent on him popping up in various situations and different characters. And I, I was just trying to think. I think this precedes any of the Bond films, doesn't it? I because this I'm is sixty two. Sure yeah, Terry Southern went on to write um, or contribute to the script for Casino Royale. Casino Royale, Royale yeah. Yeah, um, so and this this was before that. So yeah, absolutely, it does precede the Bond films. Because I always thought that Strange Love, the character, was based on you know these evil nemeses of uh, of james bond but he, it actually precedes <laughs> all the bond uh, uh nemesis nemeses i guess that's the is that the plural of nemesis nemeses nemeses ne- we'll call it for yeah, this probably. podcast it is it now. Could be. yeah um yeah so uh i that surprised me realizing that this is now 60 61 years old so i was very uh i was very surprised by that just how early this was um it's so different from oppenheimer i don't want to start talking about oppenheimer immediately but um uh, just the the length of the scenes. If anything, I think there's some at an hour and a half. This one actually might be too long. Also, there's <laughs> Kubrick's pacing is a little slow. That was the thing that struck me was that he really lets. And I think it's because of this improvisational thing. Like he'll let things linger a little bit. And at times, I felt like you know, comedy is really so much about t- uh, timing. And I think very often these scenes would have been funnier if they they were. Um, 
Shorter, some of them just being shorter, and also the fact that there's not a lot of camera movement. We've been looking at you know Wes Anderson and and Christopher Nolan, where the camera like was doing something, and in this film, he really kind of sets the cameras and lets the actors mm. um, work. And I, I I think it's you know it's mostly effective, but I also think that um, sometimes it slows down. The film kind of slows down as a result, and I think it's also it's just 61 years ago. Film audiences were different, and filmmakers were different. Mm. Um, so that that struck me, and also there, there's, there's there's clunkiness about the old technology, you know, when they're flipping switches on the airplanes and trying to get these codes, and you just waste time on t- old technology, too. I think just old technology is slower, so it actually slows the pace <laughs> of the comedy down, too, and it becomes funny in itself as, as a viewer in 2023 to see all this old, old technology getting flipped around, and... Uh, um, so if anything, I thought, you know, it was an hour and a half, I was so happy to see, you know, that it was short. It's a fairly tight film. It's, it's still super loose, I will say. I mean, there's this, we can talk about structure, but I don't know that there's a whole lot of structure other than it is at least chronological. So you, you know, there's this war that's about to be started and then what are you going to do to stop it? But, um, for me, the, I think just the filmmaking, the black and white photography is gorgeous, and yeah. I guess it is the war room, right? I guess it's in the Pentagon. That, I mean, that space, you know, as opposed to Nolan, who would cut that up a bunch and give you all these tight angles, Kubrick very often just leaves you in this space, so you feel very small, and those characters feel very small, and it sort of plays out more theatrically, I guess, and um, just great shots, great shadows, great lighting. Um, for me, it's more about, I think it's more about the filmmaking than it is about the comedy or even the story. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the story in this one because it's, it's almost um, coincidental to what's really <laughs> happening in the film. So like Terry <laughs> Southern's a pretty loose writer, easy writer, end of yeah. the road, magic Christian, Barbarella. I mean, he's kind of a, he gives things a loose structure. It's more about having fun. And I think that's appropriate in this film so that I'm not paying too much attention to it other than, you know, each character is interesting. And then obviously the super focus, the hyper focus is on what's Peter Sellers going to do on camera. Um, I was going to say that notion of being interested in the, the kind of like the technology. Um, apparently the, um, the, the inside of a B-52 was still classified Oh. At the time they made the film, so they had to guess what the inside mm-hmm. of a B fifty two looked like. But I think you do get a, a significant dose of that kind of hands on engineering, which is largely lacking from Oppenheimer. Apart yeah. from that great fifty minute Oppenheimer sequence where they're setting up the bomb test, yeah. which does concentrate a little bit on the technology and the, the sheer mechanical nature of what they're trying to attempt. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, engineering and science is largely absent from Oppenheimer, whereas it's it's you know right in front of the camera here. They spend quite a lot of time enjoying flicking switches, yeah. and you know, a lot of the plot points um, actually kind of rely on you understanding what the switches do, so that once the switches are disabled, um, and which means that the radio is knocked out, so that the ship the the airplane can't be recalled anymore. You know, it's important that you understand what's happened and why that's working. And the film never explains to you in words, oh, the radio is knocked out so they can't really be re- recalled. You know, yeah. it, it tells you that bit of story visually. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's 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 to the story's advantage that they've concentrated a little bit on this engineering. I'm going to, I see exactly what you mean about Terry Southern being a, you know, a fairly loose writer, but I would argue contrarily that there's actually, there's a fairly tight structure in this in this film insofar as, Doctor Strangelove, I think it's it, the structure is shaped like a pendulum. There's this kind of very rhythmic swaying to and fro with the story beats. It kind of it mm-hmm. swings from doom to salvation and then back again, you know, like a pendulum. Yeah. It's like, you know, we, we think we're doomed. 
you know, and the Americans think it's unwinnable. But then, you know, they learned about the Russian doomsday. Or they, sorry, the Re- Americans think that it might be winnable. Um, yeah. They think, well, you know, we might be able to go all in and then we would win. And then the, they learned about the Russian doomsday bombs and no one can win. But then, you know, they get the radio code so they can, so it's okay again. But then Kong's plane is radio damaged, so that's not okay. But they're running out of fuel, so maybe it will be all right. You know, but then they make it to the target, so maybe they won't. But then the bomb bomb doors won't open, so maybe we'll be all right. But then the bomb doors do open. It swings backwards and forwards with this great sort of uh, regularity. It's this narrative rhythm. I think it's just perfect, actually. Really, really works. Yeah, I think for me, the 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 I guess it's the granular structure is looser in the sense ah. that there is this whole structure of the film and it's and again it's linear it's fairly easy to follow it's a it's a short timeline i mean the whole thing must happen in the course of what a day or two or out even hours like two hours isn't yeah. it yeah i guess um so i think that gives it automatic structure i think what i'm i think what i'm referring to is like scene by scene it feels kind of loose like there's room to play for the actors and the characters and honestly i can't I can't name a protagonist in this film. I and mean, you've got these three Peter Sellerses. There's no one yeah. generally driving the story. So I think the structure in terms of that um, lacks, I think, from scene to scene. The scenes themselves, you're right. They're they're well-placed and they do swing back and forth like that. Um, but I think if you... And so the overarching thing has this structure, but I think there's a lot of looseness and lack of structure in um, scenes themselves. And, and um, it's it's not that it's total totally random. Um, it's much more as I said, linear and understandable than the Oppenheimer picture. And there are no politics. I think that's, that's a big difference <laughs> for me. I mean, they do spend a lot of time in that war room, but again, it's like, it's a different, it's a different space. It's big, it's cavernous. And there's a lot of back and forth between just a couple of characters. If you look at the similar kind of scene in the other film that we've watched, it's a small space. Um, and there's a lot more talking on, on a procedural level, I guess. This one has talking that's much more about characters, like George C. Scott flipping out and smoking cigarettes the whole time and and the, you know, the calm, cool, but kind of clueless president. And most of the focus is on those two characters. And in fact, there are a number of extras and none of them are big name actors, right? But mm. how many people are sitting in that war room? It must be 40 or 50 men yeah. <laughs> sitting around. Um, so I, I think the things I appreciated are very, very much in contrast to what... Um, we see in the other film and I don't again I shouldn't be talking too much about that other film yet but um, <laughs> I mean it's, it's interesting how it's like it's almost the opposite of Oppenheimer insofar as Oppenheimer has loads and loads of big name actors yes um, all doing tiny parts yeah and and the way that Oppenheimer is written they all kind of have more or less the same voice yeah it's like all of the characters in in Oppenheimer they're all kind of very clever yeah and they all kind of they're quite pithy and you know, have kind of quite clipped dialogue. They're all kind of smart, but sort of bookish. They're all kind. They speak the same. Every character kind of speaks the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas here we have a small number of characters all played by the same actor. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And yet the characterization, I think, is fantastic in yeah. in uh, in Doctor Strange. The characters are all really different. Yeah. And they're all kind of three dimensional. It's yeah. like, you know, like um, Mandrake, he's not just like a stiff upper lip Brit. You know, we, we, you know, he's great at that, but, you know, but you learn, you know, he has a prosthetic leg. You learn he was a POW who was tortured. Yeah. You know, and you learn he's kind of, he's got a bit of savvy. He tries to use lots of different approaches to try and get the codes. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the Soviet ambassador, you know, he turns up and he's kind of grumpy, but then sometimes he gets really emotional and then, you know, he gets accused of spying when actually he's not and they try and plant a camera on. And then later on, he actually does do some spying. I mean, you know, yeah. everybody gets a bit of a subplot. There's some character development. They're yeah. all kind of different. They all have a bit of depth. Yeah. Which is, they all talk like different people. 
It's a little ironic given that it's a comedy compared to Oppenheimer where you're thinking, okay, they're the real-life characters you can base them on. You can make them very dimensional and interesting. Mm. And, and the other film actually does a better job. Um, yeah. You get, and you do have you, know, have, you have some actors who are pretty well known there. Sterling Hayden as a ripper. Uh, James Earl Jones. You hear the voice. You see, yes. <laughs> you see the man. <laughs> Um, so there, and George C. Scott, of course, I mean, you definitely have some, um, pretty well-known actors. Slim Pickens, I think he'd done a lot of Westerns. So I remember him more from Westerns, but, um, but they're, yeah, it's, they all represent very different characters, I think. So they're well used and they're, um, they Mm -hmm. are more dimensional, oddly enough. Um, another structure thing that occurs to me though is, um, like the opening scene I think is brilliant. It's, it's very sexual, honestly. I mean, it's this, these two, <laughs> these two planes and, sort of, and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the rest of the film. So it's an interesting opening sequence, but then similarly, the very end is quite sudden. They're sort of d- debating about, you know, the problems of the bomb. And then the film just kind of ends. It's not like a really, it's, <laughs> we talked about the ending in Oppenheimer, which, you know, is I thought was kind of accidental, but obviously planned and and stumbled upon. Um, and this one's also kind of similarly open, and maybe that's the right end, ending, given the fact that um, you know this is early in the atomic era and Cold War and such. But um, those those two scenes at the beginning and the end were very different from the rest of the film, I guess. Is the mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that Strange Love is the the eponymous. Character, and yes, yet he yeah. really has kind of two scenes in the whole yeah. film, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why. I mean, it's a great title. It's a great name. It's a, yeah, a, yeah, a memorable is, character, I suppose. But um, it is interesting that he is the eponymous character there. I said one gag which I don't think I'd ever heard before before watching it this time. Where I was, um, where there are two background characters, or they're kind of the saying. Oh, Strange love. What kind of name is that? And yeah, the other guy kind of says, "Oh, his real name is uh, Meverdig Lieber, which is like, which is just German for strange love." It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's brilliant. What um, in a way this film strikes me as still very modern, even though it's sixty years old, um, especially because you know, the the world is ended by a character who subscribes to conspiracy theories. Yeah, when he's when he's um, uh, talking uh, about fluoridation of water and yeah. purity of bodily fluids. I yeah. could just really imagine there's a guest on Joe Rogan yeah. saying exactly the same things. It seems like a more modern idea now than yeah. ever. I even, I even wrote down QAnon. I didn't know really how to spell mm. it. It was capital Q, capital A, I think, Anon, but I'm not even sure how they do it. But it, it felt very much like that. Yeah, I was worried about the the effects on, on bodily fluids because of fluoridation in water. Yeah, great conspiracy stuff and... Just how easy it is for one. I mean, this is kind of again an Oppenheimer thing. Like how 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 much one individual could affect uh, the world for for the worse. I think so. The the Ripper character just starting a conflict over this because he thought communists were poisoning the water or fluoridating the water. Well, the, the mere fact that you have mentioned QAnon yeah. uh, now means that the algorithm will now oh, push our podcast oh straight into the inboxes of, of alt-right enthusiasts, won't it? Oh, God. Did I say QAnon? No, I said Nana-Q. Nana-Q. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. <laughs> did we mention Tom Hanks? You did. So, um, let's, well, let's, let's, I, I know you're kind of you're itching to do this. We should um, try, we, oh, we've done a little bit of it already, yeah. try and bring the two films together try and sort of yeah stitch them together one way or another before we do that let's let's quickly play who am i Uh. who am i 
a lot of characters to choose from. Oh my God, so many blowing characters to choose from in uh, in Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. A lot of characters to latch on to. Who are you this week? I'm going to start by telling you who you are. You're Dr. Strangelove because he's a doctor. <laughs> God damn, you're right. Um, in this film, let's see. Um, in Strangelove, I'm just going to choose Bat Guano, Colonel Bat Guano, mostly because I just love the name. Um, there are a lot of goofy characters, but I did like Bat Guano. Um, and then in Oppenheimer, I was that Senate aide to Strauss who actually doesn't have a name, I don't think. Um, no, I don't think he, yeah, I looked him up. I don't yeah, think he does. He's called, um, Senate aide. I think that's his name. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think that's, he's listed on IMDb as Senate aide. Um, he just, he's totally fleeced. He doesn't see the conspiracy coming or the, 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 the I guess the shenanigans, the workings of Strauss's mind. Um, and I think I was just as confused as he was. And I felt just, <laughs> I was in the, um, I was in the, in the, in the same like headspace as he was. Um, and then I liked the communists, the whole communist group. They looked like they were having good parties. So those were the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they were having more fun. They were having more fun. You're right. They're a good oh, bunch they're of poetry and books and they're drinking alcohol and, uh, yeah, just better cocktails in the communist party. Yeah. There was jazz playing. I mean, I just liked the, I liked the, I liked the commies. How about yourself? <laughs> I think if it, I if I am anybody, I think I am President Merkin Muff, Muffy from uh, Doctor Strange, only because I too have never learned the skill of getting people to move on during phone conversations. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> so the hours of my life I have been stuck just kind of yeah. uh, nodding and saying yeah 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 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah down the oh, phone to somebody because oh. I can't get them to move on. Oh, that's good. So yes, I, I identify with that very deeply. So. Um, Okay, well, let's, 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 uh, I'll, I'll play the overlong jingle and let's see whether we can draw the two films together. Okay. I was going to say, does that mean that you don't relate to anyone in Oppenheimer? Well... Everybody in Oppenheimer is extremely brilliant, aren't they? Mm. So I feel like oh, I'm not really like any of those people. There were no stupid characters. How can I? How can I fit into that world? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote under my little notes about about kind of bringing these two films together. I said, um, I said these these are two films about the end of the world. You know, uh, yeah. Well, that's true, isn't it? They're kind of so they're both you know both about atomic weapons or or at least this is this is a a a. a, a Division, which I didn't really understand until kind of sitting through the both films. So the atomic weapons in Oppenheimer, the hydrogen bomb, apparently, is what they drop in Strangelove. Um, oh. So many more times more destructive oh, than okay. the atomic bomb, uh-huh. as if the atomic bomb is not destructive enough. Um, so, you know, they're, they're both kind of films about the horror of destruction, the, yeah. you know, the realisation that everything has changed. You know, they go over the same sort of themes. Um, and, you know, Oppenheimer, it's very earnest, but I must say, I personally found Strangelove all the more frightening for being comic. Um, I wonder whether, you know, if we were really looking at the end of the world, um, I, th- I think, you know, most people would, you know, be both terrified and laughing at the same time. I yeah. think this is a human way to respond to the horror, isn't it? Yeah, there's, for me, there was a totally different fear in Oppenheimer. It's more like I'd be scared of some sham investigation by some vindictive politician. Mm. Whereas in uh, uh, Strange Love. The emphasis is on the bomb and like an incompetent military or like just an completely sort of insane uh, general just starting things and, and 
than running awry, you know? Um, so it's a different kind of fear. Um, interesting. They're both kind of peripherally about communists. They're not, they're not that directly. I mean, like the communists are this, this hidden en- enemy who Oppenheimer never really joins or deals with, but it comes back to haunt him. And then in strange love, they fluoridate the water and, <laughs> steal people of their vital fluids, I guess. So, I mean, it's they're both just stuck in there as enemies, but they're never really shown to be that evil, I guess. And, and obviously that's the joke in Strange Love, which I think sort of does a better job of being politically astute. Like, they're, they're always this the, the straw man out there, the bogeyman uh, who's supposed to be scary. So I think that was well done. Um, for me, I think we've already talked about it a little bit. Like, I think Nolan doesn't give characters time at all to develop or to even act in scenes they're too short which is very funny because it ends up being three hours of two short (laughs) scenes and it's much too long um and i think kubrick maybe again it's that i think the attention span has changed a little bit but i think maybe he almost gives actors a little bit too much time and space and obviously he's depending on improvisation from um peter sellers but as i said i think i mentioned that before i think if it were a little bit tighter and he actually gave them less space the comic timing seems a little off for the 2023 me than it would for probably for the 1962 me because I didn't I wasn't even alive then it's, it's interesting that um like there are uh, quite a lot of characters in Oppenheimer um who are you know broadly in favor of the atomic bomb in fact like most characters I think are kind of in favor of it aren't they Oppenheimer yeah. is a bit of an exception in being kind of you know sad and frightened and regretful over the atomic bomb pretty much everybody else yeah. thinks atomic bombs are great but it's it's interesting because they're geeking out they're really interested in it as a concept that we can do this right and that we can it's a math problem so it's just something to entertain them for a while but they have no idea of what the consequences could be yeah even Oppenheimer sort of has to see it before um, before he realizes what he's done. And I think the thing that discouraged me most was that there weren't really any consequences for it. You see him imagining uh, flesh melting off someone's face and you know buildings yeah. falling down, but it's all done in a very speculative manner. It's not, you don't see it happening in Japan. You see it happening in Los Alamos. And it just doesn't it doesn't hit it doesn't stay with you as a result which is ironic because you do have to go back and do a lot of research to understand the film so it stays with you in the sense that i'm confused i need to go to the google and find out what this stuff is all about um but on another level it it doesn't stay with me very much whereas the fear of someone like you know putin just deciding that there are nazis in ukraine and i'm going to start a war for it that's really scary and that's what's happening in dr strangelove i think it's one person just decides it's time for a war i mean it's interesting in strangelove i mean pretty much no nobody entertains the idea that atomic weapons are good really in strange or at least there's, there's only one person who seriously sees atomic war as any kind of like win scenario, and that is Doctor Strangelove himself. Yeah. And, who, and he's like, you know, he's openly an insane Nazi. He's the only person <laughs> yeah. who thinks thinks there is anything to be gained. Even the most um, saber rattling of the generals, you know, are still, you know, largely kind of you know, um, when uh, when George C. Scott, isn't it, is yeah. kind of saying, oh, you know, our boys are the best pilots ever. That you know, they'll make it to the target. And, you know, and he has to check his own enthusiasm because he realizes what he's saying. Even yeah. he realizes that he doesn't really want to drop an atomic bomb on anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas you, know, you have to look quite hard to find a character besides Robert Oppenheimer who's not overjoyed that, that, that yeah. you've killed 
kill people with atomic weapons. So, yeah, so, yeah they do kind of take a pretty different view, don't they? Yeah, and there's that perverse scene in Oppenheimer of them celebrating the, the dropping of the bomb. It's... They're in mm, some sort of like yeah. a quasi-gymnasium library community space with bleachers, and they're cheering on Oppenheimer for having made that happen, made it possible to bomb the Japanese. I mean, they, they, yeah, like you say, they try and entertain a little bit of the horror with the kind of the face melting, but it's yeah. it's just kind of skipped over. Whereas you know, I don't think there's anything in Oppenheimer that can manage to, that matches the horror of Slim Pickens yeah. riding a bomb <laughs> like a bucking bronco down to ground zero. I mean, that's an image that really, really oh, stays with you. It's great. You know, yeah. I you remember that vividly from the very first time I watched Absolutely. the film. And I know that, that was the image that stayed with my son after we watched it as yeah. well. We got to the end of the film and he was, felt it was a bit of a downer because that was the thing that was right at the front of his yeah. mind. It's pretty shocking, really. And think of the, the, the thousands of images in the Nolan film that don't stay with you as a result. It's, yeah. Uh, it's odd, yeah. Um, I would mention uh, women in both of these films because they're both ah. very masculine worlds uh, yeah. where men just getting us into stupid problems and situations and their solutions tend to make things even worse. Uh, <laughs> Strange Love. Correcting me if I'm wrong, is there one woman with a line in the entire film? I think there, yeah, there is one woman. It's the secretary, isn't it? It's a great scene because it's all done as a single take, isn't it? Yeah. She is um, George C. Scott's secretary. And yeah, it's a single single scene. You know, very well played, I think, actually. It's a lovely scene. Yeah. Very, very cleverly shot with the, the mirrors making this small bedroom seem like a very wide yeah. space. And yet you don't see the camera. I mean, it's, you know, it's a... It's a magnificently shot scene. It's you know it's a great scene, but yeah, she appears in one scene. It de- but it does do something um, quite interesting. She's scantily clad for that period, but yep. she's also super intelligent and articulate, and she doesn't seem histrionic <laughs> or drunk or suicidal. Mm. Um, so it's very odd that actually the 1962 film is probably more feminist with one character <laughs> than the 2023 film is with three female characters. Yeah. It's bizarre. Oof. The, the final kind of thought I had was yeah. that watching Oppenheimer reminded me that we don't really worry about nuclear war very much these days. Even, you know, even Putin's war in Ukraine is largely conventional and the people have made some rumblings about you know, the possibility of nuclear conflict, but it doesn't somehow to me feel realistic. Maybe that's naive and foolish of me. Mm -hmm. Are are we right to forget about it? I mean, probably not, but it feels like at the moment, if we're dealing with a species ending issue, it's um, climate change and not nuclear war. And I was trying to figure out, well, can either film work as a metaphor for climate change? And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, Oppenheimer, its main theme is, is kind of paying the price for past sins, I think. Mm-hmm. It's like unleashing effects yeah. that will have, um, or unleashing events that will cause effects in generations to come, whether it is the bomb or whether it is Communist Party affiliations. It's doing something today which will come back to bite you in 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Um, whereas Strange Love, somehow it kind of, it just seems to emphasise teamwork really and pulling people together to try and avoid armageddon yeah it's like strange love is all about the need for vigilance in the face of possible destruction and and the other thing that strange love talks about it doesn't entertain the the notion that there is a safe you know and uh strategic use of nuclear weapons instead it talks about how you know the idea of imagining that there is a plan b 
is absurd, isn't it? The only yeah. person who, who thinks there is a viable plan B is Strangelove himself, who is nuts. Yeah. You know, Strangelove really is the film for today. Strangelove you know, says, says we need to confront the danger that's in front of us rather than try and mitigate and, and work around it. Yeah. Um, so so you know, in that way, Strangelove feels more modern to me than Oppenheimer. And doesn't Strangelove actually do what Oppenheimer wanted to do in that he was saying dialogue, this is going to open up dialogue with the Russians. This is going to have us working together. Mm. Um, he says that very clearly in the film, that he sees the bomb as a means to negotiate. Um, and that doesn't happen really in Oppenheimer or much in the real world, but it does happen in Dr. Strangelove. He's got the Russian yeah. premiere on the phone. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's all part of a you know a, a joke basically, but um, he does have direct line to the, the to the Russians, and he's talking to the premier. Um, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So it kind of yeah, it, 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 yeah, it brings people together in a strange way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. rather than I think Nolan gives himself a great final scene that's kind of climate changey in the sense that um, the the final visual really is this this ball of fire, this line of fire, just sort of moving around the globe as it's uh, as, as Earth spins, kind of thing. Um, yeah, which could be either climate change or nuclear war, honestly. But I don't, yeah, I don't know that it works as a metaphor. But I think you're right. It's, it's. I think nuclear war is less on our minds, but it's, it's embedded. It's always there, especially those of us who grew up in the '80s when it felt like really mm. real it was going to happen. Um, and I think Nolan's more or less our generation as well. So I think that's what his fear was growing up as well. Um, so I think they're both focused pretty much on, on. Uh, nuclear war and less on anything else in terms of climate change in 1960s i don't you know that's not much of an issue i don't think yeah i don't think it was a yeah it wasn't really a contemporary idea then i think was it maybe it's it's almost like an olive branch of humor right it's a comedic olive branch to say hey this could happen maybe we should start thinking about it or maybe we should start <laughs> yeah. communicating and not yeah. let, and not, uh, clearly not let the weirdos do the negotiating not the strange loves and the rippers but <laughs> someone else <laughs> Yet sadly, that's who we've put in the White House. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we, we've watched the world end twice. I feel yeah, a bit of a downer. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's talk about whether there's any other movies playing at this theatre that might cheer us up a little bit. Ah, uh, yes. seen lately in very busy well so, uh we now that it's school holidays um so we've had actually quite a lot of evenings where Ooh. we haven't had the whole house dominated by homework and exams and stuff like that and we have actually sat and quite watched quite a lot of movies oh, wow. um which is quite good fun uh the one i'm going to pick though uh is independence day Ooh. um which is also another end of the world movie it is isn't it yeah uh but uh, it was so astonishingly cheesy. Uh, great fun. <laughs> Haven't seen it for a long time. I wanted to show it to the children. We also, we all sat down and watched it, and they did kind of quite enjoy it. But I think they were um, a little bit bemused, just as we were at the time, that uh, aliens would arrive you know, on the Earth, blow a load of things up. But their one weakness was that, that they were susceptible to you know, the uh, Macintosh operating system computer virus yeah. <laughs> so, so, thank god for computer uh, computer interoperability uh, long long live the hackers what, what have you seen this week that will take us off the, take us um, off the, the theme of the end of the world i started watching uh a series boy where is it i think it's on oh it's on amazon oh i don't want to say anything I don't want to get, unless they start giving us money, I'm not going to give those big river-named um, <laughs> organizations or that one. 
any publicity. Um, Patriot. You can find it somewhere on the internet. It's a series um, following this. He's the son of a CIA dude, and he gets into CIA activities, and um, it's, you know, it's darkly comic and violent at times, um, but lovely. He's also a folk singer who's... <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful because he's emoting and he's dealing with the trauma caused by this violent life that he lives by singing folk songs in in uh, Amsterdam coffee shops and things. It's a, it's clever <laughs> tonally. He's re- the people are really pulling off quite a wonder in terms of tone. So it's I've enjoyed it. We've seen I think three or four episodes and probably continue. I was gonna say that I saw this film called, well not all of it. Twenty three minutes of this film called Insipid, but it was called Inception. I went back. Oh. <laughs> I went back and I went back and watched the Christopher Nolan just the first. I think it was like twenty three, twenty eight minutes. Um, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. it was like oh, they're harvesting some sort of um, adrenaline or something like that. So, oh, that sounds like the QAnon people too, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and working with dreams and such. But I just I couldn't follow it in the first few minutes. And I thought I'm I'm at that age now where I can I've got some agency. And I just say, hey. I don't want to spend two and a half hours. I know after 20 minutes that I'm probably not going to respond well to this film, so I turned it off. Life is too short. And then, I think appropriately, last night I saw something called The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged and Revised Again. Uh, just <laughs> We do Shakespeare in the Park here every summer, and uh, we caught that, which I just loved, because it was it literally uh, it at least mentions every one of the 37 plays and does quite a bit of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, and it was hilarious, and it was exactly what I needed after having seen Two Nights Before um, Oppenheimer, which goes on for three hours. So <laughs> in uh, about 90 minutes, they do a great mashup of Shakespeare, and it's funny. So, And I think that's sort of like a franchise. You know, it's a product that you might be able to see in England, too, or anywhere, uh, for that matter. So it's been a great... Um, I think I remember seeing a very similar show at the Edinburgh Fringe, like yeah. about 25 years probably, yeah, ago. Yeah, that's probably so, it. Yeah, it may yeah. well be the same one. Yeah. But it was, uh, yeah, hilarious. Yeah, Christopher Nolan, take note. Yeah, yeah, take note, take note. You could take all of your films and do them in an hour and a half. That would be a, a great legacy. I've just had a great idea for a fringe show. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And we're off. I hope you make money off it. Someone should. But then so again, much. fringe show and make money, those probably don't belong in the same oh, yeah. sense. Shucks. So much for art. Next time, right, I'm going to get you to announce the films for next time because before we started recording, yeah. you proved that you were able to pronounce it much better than uh, me. I know what I'm beat. So we are going to see a three-hour, 20-minute film. <laughs> and we're going to see a two-hour film, which we both would agree to, like, that's the wheelhouse, you know, up to two hours, 90 minutes up to, to two, two hours. hours. That's where you want your film to be. And these, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little pre-synthesis or a pre-analysis um, because one film has a very easy title and one film, which is now, I guess, determined to be the greatest film of all time, has a very difficult title, <laughs> which is kind of similar to this week because we had Oppenheimer and then How I Learned to Stop mm-hmm. Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, we're going to see Barbie. Yes. That's it. One word, Barbie. And then we're going to compare that to a film called Jean Dillemont, 23 Quai de Commerce, 1080 Bouchel, which I think they're just calling Jean Dillemont. I would say that. Jean Dillemont. Um, which uh, two, two investigations of, I guess, what it's like to be a woman in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Nolan, take note. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll probably be working on the glamorous level and on the less glamorous or mundane level as well. So this, this should be a good comparison. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, looking forward to it.
Brilliant. Right. Well, this has been the, the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm sorry that we ended the world not once but twice in one episode. Uh, sometimes you've got to, got to roll with it. Yeah. Um, but thank you for joining us. Uh, we will see you. Uh, we'll see you next week, actually, for a, a popcorn counter yep. uh, about uh, about uh, upright guitar playing. Yeah. Yeah. Good and then job. we will be back uh, with Barbie two weeks after that. So see you then. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thanks, everyone. Stop worrying.